James Fallon is a neuroscientist at UC Irvine. This is James Fallon. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right, uh, James, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Duncan. Good to see you again. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about last time we talked was all about COVID. And of course, the CDC just released the new regulations on you can, if you have the vaccine, you don't have to wear the mask in public and so on. Um, how, how, how do you feel about that? Do you feel that's long overdue? It seems like a lot of people aren't getting the vaccine for that reason. Yeah, well, it's long overdue for who? I mean, if I was under the age I am, I didn't have all these sort of risk factors, you know, old guy, fat, asthmatic, out of shape, all that, you know, then you'd be worried anybody under that. I don't know why, unless they knew they had a specific risk factor, why they'd be caring about this at all anyway, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, for kids. So I don't, you know, it, uh, the, you know, we did a, a podcast with Dr. Lineback, who's has 40 years of experience with this stuff. And uh, he thinks it was just done to, for, to create economic chaos because none of the science that was coming out, uh, it wasn't really science. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, uh, it, it was a, it, the administrator of administrators, people like Fauci, you know, who's, I don't think he's seen a patient and, you know, probably, 50 years so uh, he's not even he's not even an administrator per se he's not a scientist or a doctor really he's a kind of a packager of the summary of of political notions and we you know i have very good friends with a guy who went to school with him at at holy cross no really yeah yeah and he said he always had like this this um little man syndrome right he was going to show everybody he was the best and everything and really had a lot of uh, you know, chutzpah to carry him and, and a tremendous amount of drive. And, you know, we all know, you know, people in science and work with NIH and other, and, you know, in that system know that he's been chronically pissed off because he didn't get credit for curing AIDS or finding out what it was all about. And he was been very bitter about that. So he wanted to make sure that he was in control of this whole COVID thing. Here was a second chance that, at, at uh, you know, breaking his curse, if you will. Even though he's famous, uh, he's still, you know, very highly, uh, highly ambitious person. And you combine that with a little man complex, you got trouble. So uh, none of, you know, many of us uh, didn't really believe what he was saying. And there's nothing to believe because he changed his mind so many times. Everybody can see this. And, uh, but also, you know, the administrations in, involved, uh, Everybody wants to take credit. Uh, you know, the president administration certainly does for something they had nothing to do with. So it was uh, everybody wanting to get credit as long as it turns out well. But it looked like to, to me and to several other people, some, another neurovirologist who knows everything about uh, COVID and coronavirus is a separate person who, who just, you know, saw it as some sort of um, manipulation of people in the news to uh, to create some sort of chaos for political reasons. And so everybody I know in the know, and, and only one of them is a Republican. I'm not a Republican, but it's, but only one of them is, you know, has any ax to grind that way, I guess, right. if, if, but still knows. So it, it always seemed back in 
in uh, you know starting back in February March that something didn't sound right. It didn't sound like scientists and doctors talking at all. It sounded like uh, some sort of you know social uh, social experiment. Well, the, the no, that's weird, the, that's how I still feel about it. Yeah, the weird part is there were I, I don't know if you heard about this, but this town recently in Massachusetts, it's one of the most highly educated towns in the country, and they voted to overturn the CDC's new guidelines on masks so that everyone walking around outside has to wear a mask. And well, because it, it's, it, it's a political position. It's wearing exactly. a mask. It's a it's a yeah. it's, it's a it's an expression of who you are, you see. I'm one of the good people. And of course, I live right here on a University of California campus. So uh, the people, um, you know, I've got uh, like eight Marxists in my corner of the, the street. And I yeah. know a lot of people are leftists and kind of apostat uh, liberals. Uh, and, and they're all walking around. It's hysterical. They're driving around in their cars alone with the mascot. They always, whenever they say something, it's always make sure to wear your mask and be safe and everything. And, we're, and the, you know, many of us go, what are you talking about? It's just some sort of the thing where you say, if you wear a mask, you see, this makes you one of the good people <laughs> and the people in the know. And it's, and it's this sort of leftist uh, sort of you know, thing to prove. And it's a way, it's an identification among each other. You're one of the good people. Right. It's, it's pretty hysterical. I, you know, I... It's, um, you know, I see it every day, right? I see it all the time because I live with these people and, they, and they're walking around outside and walk their dog with a mask on. It's like, I mean, even the, even the young professors. So it's, it's pretty, uh, I, I think it's pretty funny. Well, it, it, it has to be on some level a social signal, signaling mechanism because I, I would see posts by people like David Hogg, who's a, a gun activist saying that, you know, I'm gonna still wear my mask uh, even though I've been fully vaccinated outside because I don't want people to think I'm a conservative. And me, you know, like there's some balls for you. Yeah. 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 But what, so as someone who understands the brain, what is going on in our heads where these, like, I I've heard this, I don't know if this is an accurate way of saying it, people saying like, uh, being vaccinated and wearing a mask outdoors is like the liberal version of a MAGA hat. It's like, you're signaling your political identity. Why do people even bother doing that? Like, well, what's well, it's what, group, groupthink? You know, if you look at it from a neuroscientific point of view, there are people who are, you know, group or gang type of people, right? And then they're individualists. And so, in its specific case, you can have people that are more, you know, extreme on either end, are can be thought of as kind of collectivists or or, or group people. And they want to signal, uh, uh, you know, for safety, and because they're wired that way, it's a kind of empathy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a large group empathy, versus an individual, individualist or a family type of thing, you know, a smaller group, and so that has its own genetics, the own set of alleles that code for this, and its own brain connections. It's got a connectome of the, you know, the for these different kinds of empathy. So it's a kind of association that's kind of wired into people. And, um, and but it's also for safety, you know, because you're probably not going to get beaten up or robbed or shot if you're like, by a Republican banker, or a CEO, you know, CFO. And because there's no, there's no sort of fear there, really. I mean, they, they don't do that. Whereas the other way, you're, you're open for attack, certainly, as you can see. 
uh, every day. And, and so it's a, some people are scared. And so they identify with the group and hang with the group. And others say the hell with this, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm my own person and they don't do it. So there's a mix of things beyond the politics too. You know, this sort of type right. of in-group, out-group empathy stuff. Well, well, it's interesting you say that because I remember seeing a study like way back uh, where they were talking, basically it was, they had people who were liberal leaning and conservative leaning and they did a test where the person sitting across from them would look away and people who were more liberal would tend to follow people's eye movements, while people who are more, more conservative would tend to not look away, like where people are looking. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Like you're just sort of- No, that's it. That would be, that is a, is a political idea. Okay. I'm, 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 because you can be a group person and be a Republican and conservative or a Democrat or really? leftist. Yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, now, libertarians and real conservatives type, they tend to be individualists. Right? That's a different group. There's about probably 20% of people are that. Uh, but people, you know, they want safety. They want to be part of a group. It's like the, you know, any, you see TV shows that are very popular with the broad group of people. And it's always like, I'm one of the gang. This is my bar. I know these people. These are, these are all my friends and everything. This sort of safety and numbers and in a gang, you know, or in a mob or a group. And so this has been going on forever. There's nothing new. And, and it's, and so it's not specifically political. You know, there was that article that was written oh, was about six years ago, and it had to do with the amount of paranoia or something. And they said conservatives and, and liberals, but it really was, uh, you know, Republican and Democrat. It really wasn't, you know, which don't always line up exactly the same, certainly. And, um, and it showed a difference in the amygdala and more fear. And within six months, they had to retract the whole article. They had switched it. They had abs- one of the one of the students working on the project, and then they published they published it, but nobody ever read the errata, you know. The and it, and, and, and it was a very uncomfortable thing because it showed that the the ones who were the most paranoid and fearful were what they call liberals. And 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 so you it's like many things, you know, it, all you have to do is accuse somebody or put it out there and nobody ever follows up or reads further into it because, I mean, we've all turned into ADD, ADHD animals with no, you know, attention span or something, except for you and your, and your listeners who, you know, can sit and listen yeah. to something for an hour, you know, but all the, a lot of people, they just want boom, 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 especially younger ones. I think a lot of people, though, are listening to long form podcasts. I mean, probably the biggest podcast in the world right now is Joe Rogan. And he has like regularly two and a half, three hour long shows and people, oh, yeah. do it, you know, like there's that's one thing I wanted to ask you. Has there been any studies or have you been a part of any studies where they look at changes in the brain based on like social media or, you know, technology addiction? Uh, well, none, none that were any good. You know, they were done, they were, there, was, there were several done by, you know, marketing firms and by social scientists. Uh, and they weren't really, they really didn't show any brain things. They would infer certain things. But I've never seen a good one that would, you know, take, uh, you know, genetics and imaging, put it together and really do an exhaustive uh, sort of separation of traits to show that. I've never seen one that, that's done it that way. You know, a lot of people 
get into this because of politics, right? They're like, like journalists. They get into it because they have a certain political position. They're no longer journalists. They're just they're propagandists. And but it's 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 true for every all the sciences I know. And uh, there's always people there that use it for a political purpose. So I you know I tend not to listen to them if I know that's what they are. And some of them are close colleagues of mine. I know they they will have a certain way of looking at scans because of the death penalty, you know, for murder cases. And because of a religious or political belief, they'll just say things they know aren't true just because they're driven by the belief, by the emotional connection to a belief. And and so in that way, it's a, it's a limbic, uh, you know, it's the emotional brain connection to things. Well, but like, that, like what? When you talk about the, the death penalty, what, like, what are they looking at that they know to be true and that they're saying the opposite? Well, a, a couple of people I know very directly because I know the scans, I know the people and I know what they say, uh, but they don't say it publicly, is that if you are against the death penalty, you will do anything to interpret a scan to make it look like that person, you know, the devil made him do it. He had no choice in it, right? This is how it can be misused. The scans, it's like, you know, the work I do too. And, and it's, it's like, well, he really never had a chance because his brain is that way and therefore he has no free will and therefore he should not get the death penalty. So mm-hmm. they will massage the results, the interpretation of the results to fit that narrative so they don't get the death penalty. Wow. And it's it's unfortunate because I, I don't believe in the death penalty either. But even if people do have free will, I, I don't believe in it. That's uh, I don't believe in it either. I'm against the death penalty. But nonetheless, you know, massaging data and changing the, you know, all of this to fit what is driving you is uh, that's a sin to me. You know? Absolutely. What do you think of because um, you're a scientist? What do you think of the whole Jeff? Jeffrey Epstein uh, saga and his uh, how he, he sort of got his tentacles into the scientific community and was giving people a lot of grants. And it seems like some of those guys were maybe uh, there was a little foul play going on there. It, did, did that surprise you at all? No, 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 no. And the people that hung with them didn't surprise me at all. I mean, these are guys being guys, right? Old guys going after young women. What's new about this? This yeah. one goes back. This is pre-Greek, right? Yeah. This is like the first, you know, the first problem women had. It's probably, you know, five hundred thousand years old or a million years old. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and he had enough swagger and the connections and everything, and he had the pitch. And so, no, it doesn't surprise me. This would be a very common thing. I and mean, this is a sort of a Bill Clinton move, right? This is Bill. This is why people. You know, most people study psychopathy, saying the closest one to being a psychopath was certainly Bill Clinton, because he had no moral. There was nothing moral there. It was nothing really political. He was just he was just trying to get laid, you know. And uh, but any guy can look at that and go, oh, he's just being a guy. Right. But even even this, it's really awful. Uh, but it's like uh, people cutting people slack in politics and leadership because they think they're nice and they're not mean and they're cute and whatever, uh, you know, um, that's that's good for kids, right? If you're a teeny bopper, that's how teeny boppers get in trouble. But I, you know, falling for that after you're 25, after all the synapses and all the monoamines are layered out in your cortex, it's like, what? Uh, who do you think you're kidding? Right? right. But people still do it, and I understand it. But how? I mean, 
why do you think he went after scientists in particular? Maybe he just had a genuine curiosity in science and wanted to fund it. Well, he, I think he did. You know, many people, they have a genuine interest, but then they, all the other parts of their enterprise, well, and it ends up turning out very badly. You know, it's like if you if you look at some if you look at some psychopaths, they really get involved with uh, with working with the community and in, in, in different charities, right. you know, and they really mean it. It's not to lure kids in or anything. They really mean to do that. But they're also psychopaths who kill on some yeah. nights. So that firewalling uh, is is I think pretty common. So for Epstein or any other wealthy person, they tend to round up. They can round up uh, scientists. They bring them in on think tanks, and, and, and I've done a lot of this, right, up, up to that point. And, um, and they listen to your ideas, and then they may fund one of your students, or they, they and then may see who you're working with, and your first thing works, and they really throw men, money at you. So it, it looks like a natural sort of progression of got to get to know you, want to know your values, let me see your data, your first pilot study, oh, it's different, it's new, and then we'll really get into it. And that's a, a very common sort of progression. And, and, and I think a scientist could get into that quite honestly, and that person could, because they're just inquisitive, smart people, right? Yeah. But when, it, when, when the whole magic, when the magic sauce gets all put together, it's, it's hard uh, for some people to then resist the temptation. Uh, and you just you can slowly get into this. It's, 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 uh, it's insidious. And, and that's, I mean, you, you heard about Bill Gates is getting divorced oh, yeah, yeah. recently. And, and that's apparently at least they're putting out that, you know, as soon as Melinda heard in the New York Times news stories about him and, and Jeffrey being together, like, well, why do you think a guy like of that stature wants to, to hang with an Epstein? Oh, it's, it's the buzz. It's like, why do anybody say, why do you, did you really need that money? Did you really need to abscond with that? Did you really need to, you got the most beautiful wife in the world? I mean, you know, Tiger, what's wrong with your Bill Clinton? Well, that's a different story, but because um, people think it's, they're looking for something cuter or better or more money. And that's not, it. it's the hunt. It's the thrill of winning that hunt. So even when you've got everything, you still need the juice. It's any addiction, you need a little more and more. And it's got some challenge to it. And, and I think people make, well, I know some people make mistakes thinking that it's like a guy like that having an affair or a guy like getting involved in some nefarious thing. He doesn't need it. Well, he, you're thinking like a normal person. You're not, not think, thinking about a super alpha who has to dominate and win everything all the time and whose vistas become higher and higher. That, that increasing uh, challenge and increasing risk reward is the buzz. That feels good, you know. It's, it's your risk takers, natural good risk takers, and therefore they they have to do one thing, uh, which is always increase the risk while trying to win, and and eventually it, it, everybody gets caught, right? And but it's still a game. It's like a game like anybody. Why do you? Why did you ski on that? You know that 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 triple black diamond when you really can't, even though you're working up to it. Well, for the buzz. And, and, to, and to say to yourself, I beat that. And uh, if you're not competitive, if you're not like a superstar or something in, in anything, you somebody would never get that. I'm saying I'm not, but I kind of can imagine this. But, you know, it's interesting you say that, like, I remember walking past, and I'm sure a lot of people have had this thought before. I, I was walking past this apartment with my friend 
and there was just like a little ledge that you could easily get into the apartment. And I, I said that, and uh, I was like, man, being a criminal would be so easy. And, uh, and, and it's like, yeah, but like, you think about it, nobody who's a criminal is rational enough to make it easy. Like they're, yeah, yeah. These are these are fundamentally different people. They have different brains. So when people always ask about TV shows or movies or something about the behavior of criminals, or in trying to you know working with writers and, and producers about creating um, you know character, true characters, or or people just you know talking to people about what motivated their husband or their wife or their child to do things, and they're always coming about it from the viewpoint of a normal person. Well, this is fundamentally off because they're not, they're not. Yeah. What about um, when it comes to addiction? You, we've talked before about you had some uh, some studies with patients who had depression and you were able to analyze their brain, do like a comprehensive scan and determine what was the best treatment for them. Like some of it was SSRI. Some of it was like a blue light when they went to sleep. Um, are there effective treatments for addiction? Uh, well, that's a great question. It's the most you know, fundamental one. Uh, the only one I know of, uh, and, and we have a, we have a startup company for gene editing for this specific question. And there are, there's a convergence of connections and neurotransmitters in what's called the hedonic hotspot. It's, the, it's called the medial hook of the nucleus accumbens. You know, it's part of the, the striatum. And that's kind of, even though there's a full connectome network, that's a real center area along with some dopamine cells, how they interact and how those transmitters go. And, you know, almost all addictive behaviors, all those addictive feed into that and release certain compounds. But, you know, a fundamental part of the, you know, just being a user versus really being an addict for anything is this additional thing about a stress hormone that's made in that part of the brain and in the hypothalamus and the amygdala, which is CRH. The corticotropin releasing hormone is the main brain hormone that reacts to all stressors, but it's also a transmitter in the brain. And when that's released uh, uh, in addicts, uh, after they have stopped using. So after you know they get up in the morning, either take, you know, have a cigarette and then they get the, the rush and then there's the rush goes down and down and down until they get in a negative territory. And then by the time the second, third cigarette or hit takes place, it's sometime in the day, they're not really looking for pleasure. They're trying to relieve the pain that's induced by the lack of the nicotine, for example. And the lack of the nicotine releases corticotropin releasing hormone. It feels terrible. It's like you've, you've lost some loved one, right? And so it's that intense. And that's a genetic thing, whether you have that CRH variant and, and those connections, uh, the, there's no known way of getting rid of that by taking a pill or, you know, burning something out. But, you, you know, the, what I have used and uh, what people I, I know used all the time, which is not a drug, is, is a kind of self-cognitive behavioral therapy, which is every day every morning you have to remind yourself uh, you, you say you don't do this thing don't do this thing you got to keep reminding yourself during the day that's either whether you're using people or you know i smoke cigarettes forever and i still think of smoking it's never going to go away it's been 20 
two years since I've had any smoke at all, any cigarettes at all, but I still think of it every day and, and miss it. But I have to tell myself, you can't do that or you'll die, you know, it's, or you can't mistreat somebody. It's a bad thing. So this constant reminder, you know, putting, putting the, the, the little tape around or the little red piece of string around your finger, just to remind you every day in the morning, noon and night, not to do it. That's the only thing that works for me and, and other people, you know, it's an important part of addiction therapy that is the CBT, CBD along cognitive behavioral therapy, not CBD. Yeah. Uh, and so it's an important part of that. Uh, and something I prefer because it doesn't involve drugs because I'm not crazy about drugs because it's, it always, it sort of always ends poorly, you know? Well, when you say drugs, you mean certain like treatment drugs, like methadone? Anything, any drugs. I don't take antibiotics. I don't take, you know, I, I've never, I've never had somebody drop me in upper ones, but I don't take uppers. I don't take, uh, you know, sleeping pills or relaxants or nothing, even though, you know, I have had panic attacks, a lot of them early on in life. And I just, I wouldn't take anything for it and just learn ways of manipulating my heart rate and blood pressure to control it without drugs. I come from a family of pharmacists who went out of their way, you know, it was kind of taught this too. Went out of the way, uh, the last thing you do, surgery, the second last thing is take drugs for anything. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to just let my body, uh, along with some coaxing from either knowing some tricks, some, uh, you know, cardiovascular tricks or, or kind of a meditation or this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to uh, get myself out of a bind, either for urging or for being sick. You know, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't go to a doctor at all. I just hardly ever been to doctors. I'm surrounded by doctors, right? I'm, it's, all physicians are who I interact with all the time. And they always think it's funny, but that's just a, 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 a choice to avoid uh, drugs and surgery and, and actually physicians. That's, that's probably going too far, but I do even though my best friends are physicians. Well, have you heard of Dr. Carl Hart at uh, Columbia? I believe he's a pharmacologist and he's someone who talking about drugs and addiction uh, it says that a very small percentage of people, something like five to 10% actually have it within them to become addicts and that the rest of the population can use drugs ranging from weed to in his case even heroin or cocaine yeah, yeah that's I, I don't know him but i know the idea that that idea goes back uh to and we studied opiates and other um and other drugs starting in the transmitter systems back in the 70s from to today so i mean this is an idea that's that's been that's that's been around but now we know more with genetics in the past 15 20 years that uh, whatever alleles you have are really very determinate. And then and the fraction of people that have enough alleles for addiction is probably about, I would say it's more than five, it's probably more than 10%. And then the ones though, for the, the a real problem that also have that corticotropin releasing hormone variant that really drives you into being an addict and about 10% of that. So it may be a little bit higher. And so we've always tried to figure it between 15 to 20% are addictable and the rest aren't. Now, I, you know, I, uh, we, we had a nicotine grant, a $40 million nicotine grant and a $20 million large nicotine grants with NIH. And, uh, and, and part of it was, you know, 
the, the argument is that, in the political argument, because uh, that the, the tobacco CEOs, when they testified before Congress, were not lying. They say that it's addictive. And for most people, these things are not addictive. They can take it or leave it. You know, I have a whole family of people that can have two cigarettes a day and they never get addicted. Or people I know who take, like you say, heroin or something, they're not addictable. And of course, everybody, there's a whole group of people who want to scare you because they never want you to take any drugs, including your parents and churches and governments, and everything. But, the, you know, the, the truth is that it's only a fraction. And, you know, people think, well, what if a big bag of cocaine? I said, I've had a big bag of cocaine in front of I don't take it. Yeah. They can't believe it, you know, because they're, you know, these are people who are users. So they think everybody would have to take, I can't, I can't take it. It's like that scene from, uh, you know, A Bug's Life, you know, Harry, don't go into the light. You know, it's too beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, many people can take it or leave it and they can, can use it, but it's not something, nobody wants to make that some sort of official policy. Nobody's got the, few people have the balls to say that, Right. And, um, and even though we know it's true. And so it is, I would, I don't know, 5% is low. I think it's, it's more up to 10, 15% are, yeah. are addictable and really. And so if people go and get genetically tested early. And, uh, and I put this at the, in a book, the, the book 27 with Gene Simmons, you know, from, from Kiss. He asked me to write a chapter at the end of his book on you know, why rock and rollers and musicians, other people die at 27. And so I went through, through this and, and especially about addictions and the development and the fraction of people who actually have this. So that's in, the, and it's in, you know, accessible language, I think in, in his book, 27, is a discussion about the brain and genetics and development of this, and especially young people, you know, from, from 10 years old up to 30. I, I had heard, someone had said to me uh, that women's brains develop like are, are, you know, quote unquote, fully developed at age 25. And for men, it's like age 27. Is that true? It's no, it's too variable to, to make, you know, that sort of uh, a conclusion. I, there's a, a really well-known hysterically and a very, very successful neuroscientist here at UCI. And, and he, he said that uh, he was glad, he says the only reason that he said, the only reason I'm smart is because I matured so late. You know, I, my, my puberty didn't occur until I was 15 or 16. And that delayed any sort of, you know, a lot of synapses from forming because the steroid, the sex steroids, other steroids kind of fix the synapses and, and developmentally. So people who develop mature, you know, the people who really, you know, the guy was like, he was very mature. He was very smart and slick at 10 years old. And they turn out to not be so smart afterwards. It's the people who are the delayed nerds without this, you know, the flood of hormones uh, that are become the, you know, the really smart ones. And, and if you look at it in terms of, for women, that it's, it's, that's, a, it's a different, it's, it's different in terms of when it occurs, because more women, girls mature earlier than men. Okay, so there's the early part, is, is done, um, the early part of development around puberty is set earlier in, in females. Uh, and then there's the final myelination all through the cortex, especially the dorsal cortex uh, in the twenties. And that can stretch out until you're about 35. Some people don't reach their full 
development until they're 35 years old. And that's when they're maximally cognitive, the smartest and everything. But then they may not emotionally be so great. And then you have to wait until your 60s until they balance out. Then you, then you have a, a balance of a brain. So really the, the maximal brain uh, is in the late 60s, you know, on, on average. But uh, for women <clears throat> on the far end, there's too much individual differences and the testing that's done are on different ethnic groups because different ethnic groups have this different uh, uh, trajectory of development. So it, you'd have to, it'd have to be an enormous, an enormous group representing all ethnicities really and ages. And that study to look at myelination patterns and look at the what's called diffusion tensor imaging, DTI type of fMRI and all of them, that's a $50 million experiment. So I don't know, you know, we've got to wait until there are enough individual cases are built up to do that, to actually answer it. So you really, that's not been answered yet. So the answer to your question is that's not known. Okay. That finally my own issue. It, it's, it's interesting because that's like a common piece of pop science is that your brain is not developed until you're 25. And then once you're 25, you're in, but. No, it's really more like 35. But anyway, but 25 is the last myelination um, surge, if you will. I see. What, what do you think about this trend of older men getting uh, testosterone replacement therapy? And they seem to say it, uh, it, you know, they, I've heard people describe it like they felt like their energy and their, you know, whatever drive sort of like dimmer, dimmer. And then they got this couple shots and then it was like, you know, turned all the way back up and they felt like they were 30 again. I, is this, does it have like long-term consequences? Is this the new normal? What's going on here? Yeah, I, I mean, I have friends, physicians that even do this because um, they would say it's not only sexual. To me, I, I say, you're just doing it to get laid. Come on, <laughs> be, be honest here. Everybody's, everybody says things, oh, it's for my health and it's for this and for my smartness. And if you really dig down a while and you get somebody uh, hammered a little bit, they'll finally, whether it's a man or a woman, admit to you what they're really doing it for. It's usually going to get late. Okay. But beyond that, uh, the, the, the loss of muscle mass, right, can be reversed uh, with testosterone shots. Now, people take it orally and it doesn't really work too well. You have to, you know, you need intramuscular shots of this stuff. And so a lot of people don't get that. So there is a placebo effect that if you take testosterone boosters, like the TV boosters, uh, all of a sudden you, you know, you feel more energetic and that's uh, probably in most cases, a, a you know, a placebo effect, right? I, I'm going to do this and it doesn't last, but it's enough to sell people this for a year. Um, there are dangers of course, to using any, you know, anabolic steroids, sex steroids, uh, on because it can make you really aggressive. Some people become very toxically aggressive. Is I don't know how good that is. Um, especially, you know, you get in fights all the time. You get really aggressive and your bones can't take it. It's almost suicidal, but it's not pretty. I mean, the people who do this, it's, it's not pretty to watch them. You know, there's this thing about aging gracefully and maturely, but to have these guys all puffed up and go, really gonna do look at me, you know, yeah. It's like, you know, the, you don't seem like you too much, you know, and it's, uh, and, and you're not, and is it really working with the girls, you know, is it, and, um, and so, you know, to me, uh, I, 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 I like a more natural sort of aging process, 
Uh, but some people take it, and of course they swear by it. And but you have to take it by I am to really make it work. And, and this is something that I wanted to ask you earlier. It, when you were first starting in research, um, was LSD still legal? Was it were people doing studies on it? Yeah, it was legal. Okay. So psilocybin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did the, you? Uh, you know, it's interesting. The guy, the guy that lived across the street from me. Was a psychiatrist. It was one of these MK Ultra guys, uh, who was a psychiatrist and was, you know, pretty well known. That there were many parts of MK Ultra or MK Ultra type of experiments, right? They all weren't under that one umbrella, but they were very similar. The psychiatrists using all sorts of things, including drugs like LSD, uh, uh, and it was it was used by a lot of psychiatrists. And, and you know, the, the CIA basically brought. LSD into this country, uh, and 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 it was you know it was it was a part of that. The thing is, it doesn't work. You know, the whole MK Ultra stuff. You know, we're going to mind control. It, it doesn't work. Yeah. But it's nonetheless that's where a lot of this came in. A lot of people learned about it who may have been in Washington or other places where the experiments were going on. You know, like Ken Kesey and all these other hipsters, and um, and so. Uh, it was, yeah, it was legal. And, and when I was in college in the 60s, people would say, oh, you know, there's this mass and everything. So it was, it was available, certainly. What, what was it like? Do you remember when they made it illegal? Because, I mean, there, there were tons of studies done. Obviously, it had a big impact on culture. And to just turn off the, the switch seems like it would have caused. It was around 70. It was right, you know, it was after I, just after I got out of college uh, that it, uh, that, that it was made illegal, yeah. And, and okay, so were you able to do any research into it at the time? I, I wasn't interested in it. Okay. I mean, even though the first thing I went in to was psychology and abnormal psychology at Rensselaer Polytechnic, I was, you know, that's, I got into that, but I wasn't so much interested in that because I didn't know enough about biochemistry, pharmacology, genetics at the time. I was into what most sort of a soft, it was physiological psych, psychology, but nonetheless a bit soft. And it was when I then decided to go into more hardcore neuroscience and neurotransmitters that it became interesting, you know, uh, in the mid late seventies. But I, I didn't, uh, and I, you know, work with people who work with LSD and collaborated, but I never brought it into the lab as something uh, that I did, no. Okay, that's, when you talk about getting into abnormal psychology, I remember way back the first time we talked, you said how when you were, you know, a teen, you'd steal cars and do all kinds of crazy things. Was that kind of uh, sort of like the changing from being, uh, uh, you know, in a, a witness to this to being a sort of a student? You see what I'm saying? Like, w was that part I, of the drive there? I, I, my mother had told me a couple of years ago before she died, she was like 102. But be, and she told me of the stuff I used to do and that it was, it wasn't exactly okay. And so I had to be kept busy all the time. And, but that started around puberty. It wasn't later at all. And it was, uh, and it was just a, you know, it was, it's thrill seeking. It still is. It's all about, it was all about thrill seeking for me. And, you know, because any cars we stole, we returned with gas in them, <laughs> Simon eyes. Anytime we, you know, it was, it was fires, but there was kind of controlled and, and, it, and so we, anything I was involved in, we didn't want anybody to get hurt. 
So at that time, it wouldn't be considered psychopathic. It would be, you know, a guy, you know, just screwing around a mayhem person. And that was the intention was just thrill seeking. Yeah. And this is also back in the 60s, I imagine, where this stuff, yeah, was yeah. a lot more leeway, you know, nowadays. You a lot know. more leeway. And there were a lot more people that were, um, well, there were more people doing things just for the hell of it, right? Just for fun and not, and did not have intentions for, you know, death and mayhem and all of that, but like to see a fire burn or like to jump in a car, steal it for a couple hours and bring it back. And, you know, or you go to a diner and, you know, and, and bolt out of it without paying, but you really, you know, you really hid the tip and the money underneath. Just, it was all just thrill seeking stuff. And it wasn't until I was able to get into a lot of football in high school and college, and then in competitive skiing in high school and then in college, that I was able to burn a lot of that off. I was too exhausted to, to do much of that on a, a regular basis, although I did in college and afterwards. It's just, you know, to me, it was just fun. Now it would be considered completely psychopathic and very, or at least sociopathic, but not then. So it doesn't count, you know, in, in that way. Why do you think that kind of stuff starts around puberty? And why do you think it's more common, at least those kinds of things for, for boys? Testosterone. Okay. Testosterone helps fuel this, certainly. But you also, you, you need, you have, I think you need to be wired for aggression, too. And, and we know that there's a, a huge genetic component to just regular competitiveness and aggression. And, and so you, and you, it, so you can have that and be very competitive and aggressive without being, you know, criminal or really harmful. Uh, and then you start adding testosterone on during puberty and you really get aggressive. It's hard to control. And then, um, so I think you, you kind of backdoor it through the juices, you know, through the genes and the juices mm. at that time. Uh, now, but that's in people who had a normal upbringing. If you were beaten, abused or abandoned or something very young and you have this, then that's where psychopaths come from. Or if you're bullied, I, nothing like that happened uh, to me. So I was very lucky. So I had all the basic drives to, toward aggression, competitiveness, mayhem and all that, but it never had a, a, a cruel or mean component to it. It was, I was never getting even with, for anything because I was not mad at anything. You know, and part of it, I guess, was generational because the generation before us, that that short generation who are now in their late 70s to about 90, you know, it's that small right after the uh, World War Two. And these are the James Dean types. They're angry, but they didn't know why. Yeah. And, and so it was the rebel without a quiet and it was generally angry. And that was it was a meme, but it was a real group of people. All the beat poets were in that. And it was, um, that, that was separate. But when my generation came in, I came right in the beginning of the boomer generation. Uh, I was treated well, and it wasn't really cool to be that, you know, to be the angry guy who just goes out and have fights and because I'm mad, you know, and I, people in my family, a number of them, they were really loved and mix it up that way, were the older group. And they're, they're like from a different family. Yeah. We live together. And so, you know, you can't leave out generational things and what's happening socially. I know I, I tend to drive drive home the genetics and epigenetics and brain stuff, 
but there is a part of the narrative that certainly is 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 in play and that generation you can tell them you can tell them a mile away you know they could be like 2 years older than me or, or you know my group and you know you know who they are they they're just angry for no reason and, and they're, they're you know kind of sullen and they get in too many fights and all this stuff and you ask them why uh, and they don't know they don't really know yeah, that's one of the things that Hunter Thompson talked about, about the Hells Angels, is that these guys who came back from World War II and they just, they were looking for someone to blame and they didn't know who it was, but right. if you bothered them at a bar, then that night you were it. Like, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, I didn't know that about the greatest, as they call it, the greatest generation, that they had that within them. Well, mine was the greatest generation was the one before that. Oh, really? Okay. So these this generation, this this, this shorter generation, they were born about 1940, you know, up till about 46. Uh, they, they, from the mid thirties to 46. And they, um, and, and so the, the greatest generation were the, the one before that, who, who didn't have this stuff, even I though see. they went through it. And then the poor ones were the ones, you know, before that were the ones before the greatest generation who fought in World War I who is, you know, was a such a damaged group and such a damaged world at that time. And that's where all this stuff really took speed, you know, 1917, 18, 19, all this Antifa stuff and all the communist revolts and all that's when it really uh, uh, took up steam because of a whole convergence of factors that happened at once. Yeah, it's, I, do you want, I just talked to someone recently who spent a lot of time with uh, Steve Bannon and was talking about how he's obsessed with this like theory of history that's history is cyclical and that we're entering a destructive phrase or phase and that if we want to bring on you know regenerate the cycle and get back to a golden age really the goal is to just destroy as much as possible um do you what do you make of that do you see ourselves as being in a destructive phase of history do you believe in this cyclical history well, the, there are boom and bust times economically, and there's a correlation with that. There are also pandemics that occur that correlate with this. There are also over the centuries and millennia, uh, when certain clim climactic changes occur, there is a spike in this stuff. And when they all come together, that, and they tend to because of the change of weather pattern, the change in economics, the change in uh, certain disasters, that all those metastable things in the, in the, in the culture will then crystallize. Uh, whereas before they were you know, robust enough to, to, to resist this, this change. But the change isn't always the same. You know, if you look at the, the major change would be back in the 1790s, 1800 French Revolution, right? Uh, where you saw that, and that went completely overboard in wacko. And, and so all those leftists then ended up destroying France and a lot of Europe. And then there was a, a stretch of time that went to the, you know, 1848, when there was a whole series of revolutions, about 50 of them occurring simultaneously, and they were uncoordinated. But that was a, all of those were related to, you know, first of all, the potato famine at that time, right, 1848, as a European potato famine, most famous from being in Ireland. Uh, but also, on top of that, there was some radical weather at the time. And, and also, there was, uh, there was still a lot of monarchy and colonialism. 
so the monarchy and the colonialism and then also religion was considered to be very oppressive. So those 1848 things that occurred kind of spontaneously, uh, 50 of them, that was the largest group of revolutions, uh, and certainly in the history of Europe, I think, or anywhere, uh, occurring at that year. And, but it was more for what we'd call regular liberal democracy, you know, democracy and for working people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was, but it wasn't destructive. It was, there was also occurring a, a bit later, the, you know, there was the, in France, the, the Franco-Prussian war, which, which precipitated a lot of problems. And then later you, you, and also 1848 is the same year the Communist Manifesto was written because it was all these things were happening and everybody had a different reason for it. So you had uh, in the 19th century, people like Bakunin and Prudhomme, and these were all different forms of you know, anarchy and, and socialism and, and with Marx communism. So these were all different flavors of, 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 of a revolt, but a lot of it had to do with the monarchy and feudalism. And, 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 and also the, the role of the military, the supreme role of the military in these countries too. It was a unique sort of combination and, uh, and, and colonialism and imperialism. So once you get to 1914, you have what was thought to be the best year they ever had. It was the best decade they ever had in Europe. Not only the weather, everything was okay, and, but, but it was, you know, but there, were, uh, there was a lot of pent up stress and, and anger and poverty, really real poverty, you know, nothing that people here would know anything about, but a real poverty. And so when that spark, and it could have been any spark, you know, there it was, you know, a Serbian you know, gunshot, just by bad luck. Uh, and then after that, after World War I, then you had, you know, G Germany and other people becoming very angry. And, and so that's when the, the communist revolt, the Spartacist revolution, where you had, you know, Rosa Luxemburg. And we have Rosa Luxemburgs, you know, uh, you know AOC thinks she's Ro Rosa Luxemburg. Tlaib thinks she's Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, Omar, they, they all, these gals think they're all, you know, Rosa Luxemburg. Or the next one, which is Il Pasionaro, which is the Spanish Civil War. But these are connected by the same people, the same ideas. So all the Antifa stuff, the communist revolutions, the anarcho-syndicalists, and all the flavors, it's got a hundred kinds of communism, all started being created at that time. Now it looks like a linear movement, but because but you can take that the fact that there was a regular uh, group of revolutions, but the revolutions were not the same, they were different. And so they look different to me, even though there's a fundamental background of what Steve Bannon is saying. But it's, I, don't, I, I think there has been a linear progression of this stuff. Uh, you know, the one now with Antifa's and the anarcho, because it, and it always fails miserably. It's like a hundred, a hundred different major experiments and about a thousand uh, utopian communes that have been tried over the past, well, it's, it's been now, it's 150 years, all ending miserably with a lot of people dying, a lot of poverty, and people just, why they think they're gonna get this, some combination of anarchy and communism, and it just always blows up. 
because something that Marx was very negative about a lot of these guys was human nature. They just didn't understand human nature. And then natural, they, they thought it was all from without. It was all social pressure. And once the social pressure and all these institutions were dissolved, then <coughs> human nature would be this wonderful cooperation, which never happens. And so our summer of love, what was in 1967 with the hippies, that lasted two months. It's like most of them. That lasted about two months. And then everybody start tries screwing everybody else's wife and they get, they fight over things and, and it's, you know, and they become very selfish. Yeah. And, and so it's a, just a this denial of human nature. But so I, but I think there is a progression. If you really look at the, the, the parallel lines of thought and climate and poverty and all of that, that uh, these are qualitatively different from each other, I think. That it's interesting you say about the social pressure, because that was one of the things that Dostoevsky was famous for, that, you know, you, you, in Crime and Punishment, the idea that was very prevalent, that if you just fixed, if, if you built the society in the perfect way, sure. people wouldn't want to commit crime. But some people just want to commit crime because it's just, just so they know that they can, you know. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a complete ignorance of psychology, psychiatry, human behavior, and that's what, what keeps killing these, you know, the, 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 well, with the anarchists, because there's so many kinds of anarchists too, um, but they, unless you're a pure anarchist, just no government at all. And they're never like that. There's always this, what ends up happening, of course, is they, um, all the different socialists and anarchists end up coming together because they find each other, because it always ends up being totalitarian. And it, oh, the same things always happen that they were fighting. And it's just part of the human nature that for some reason, socialists and anarchists, they deny it. And, and Marx never got it. A lot of these guys didn't get it. And if you look, if you go back to, uh, you know, kind of the, some of the genesis of this to the, you know, the 18th century uh, philosophers, you know, German philosophers, uh, they tried these different formats and, and, and mutated into Marxism and, and fascism and Nazism, uh, even though what they originally said was not that, right? You, 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 and, and so it was a mutated jump, but still they had a fundamental misunderstanding. They thought, even the old guys, Elizabeth's 18th century uh, philosophers, that if you took care of the environment, everything be the same and everybody would be happy. And it was just, it's, I can't believe there are still people who believe this, right? I mean, we have so much, we've got this, you know, 400,000 articles written by all sorts of people around the world about human behavior and about the genetic basis of it and the, now the epigenetic basis of it and people's tendencies for mayhem and just in selfishness that isn't because of poverty or, or oppression or anything or gender. And, and they're wired that way, and it, but there's still denial about this. I mean, you still hear it, and and uh, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't know how much is willful ignorance, or they're just not. These are not the classes they're taking. Yeah. Um, well, look, we're we're almost at an hour here, so I want. No, to, I'm just, we're just getting going here, Doug. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask you before uh, before we sign off here. Yep. We're, it seems vaccines are well, they're here. Um, mask guidelines are changing, but the COVID is still raging in many parts of the world. Uh, do you see a way out of this, at least for the United States? Do you see a timeline? Well, we're, I mean, we're already seeing you know, what, what is the 
what is the mortality rate right now? It's probably really low. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, if you look behind in Irvine, it's always been like the same as, almost the same as flu, mortality, almost nothing. But if you go two towns away, you go to Santa, Santa Ana, where a lot of people live together, multi-generation, living together, a lot in the service community. And that is, you know, all this crowding like you find in India and in areas where there's a lot of congestion, the, people's lifestyles and the way they live together is very much like what happened during the plague, you know, the European and Asian plagues, uh, what, 1500 years ago. Uh, the same kinds of conditions with tuberculosis also. So it's this congested living certainly adds to it. So that, you know, how do you change that? Well, that is related to poverty, right? But some of it's choice. Some families, like I come from a Sicilian family, we all like to live together. We would, if we could, right? So, I'm, you know, nobody's above this. It's just that certain ethnic groups, certain kinds of families, they want to be together all the time. And they're in, involved in a lot of outdoor activities, outside service activities, that's where you see this, the high rates. And so uh, to the extent that we can continue this, you know, the, the type of gig economy that we have, right, which is, uh, which is online, you know, for the people who can do it, uh, it's going to only add to the decrease of mortality in the United States and much of Northern uh, Western Europe and where people are young, people where the, where, you know, like in Africa, the, the very low rates of transmission and, and because there's a lot of young people, there's more young people there, children than anywhere. So their mortality is very low. So there's all these demographic and social, social and cultural uh, things, but there will always be areas in the United States where large families are crowded in together and they live multi-generation service community. And they're always, they're always going to have trouble with diseases generally, including COVID. Well, on, uh, on that note, look, I, I, I wish we could talk longer. Um, but I, I, I unfortunately have to go. Um, you gotta get, you gotta get near retirement. Don't I seem to be having a good time? Yes. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, that's, I'm I'm trying. I'm 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 trying to build some web businesses on the side and pray to God I can. Oh, I know you're a busy guy, man. Um, yeah, uh, but this is my hundredth episode. So that's great. I, yeah, I, congratulations. That's that's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. And uh, yeah, so you and you've been you know um, on the show a number of times, and and you're definitely I'm putting out a top ten uh, of of all my guests, and you're obviously going to be in there. But I just wanted to thank you for you've taken the time to do this show a number of times and it's always been great. So uh, it's been a real pleasure. I always, I always love talking to you. I never want it to end because, you know, you got a way with you, you know, to events and, you know, bring out answers that, uh, that it's, it makes it easy to talk and, and it makes it easy for me to say foolish things. So that's great. Right. It's got some, some entertainment value. There you go. I, I don't think it's too foolish, but, I'm definitely entertaining and uh, I always learn something. So um, we'll obviously we'll stay in touch and thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. See you. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you to James Fallon. And thanks for listening to the hundredth episode of Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.